Okay, while the uh, buckets are being passed around, if you have a Bible with you, could you turn to John's Gospel, chapter 21? If you don't have a Bible with you, don't worry, the, uh, the verses in the Bible that we look at will come up on the screen behind me so you can follow them there. And I think the buckets have done their rounds. I will, uh, I'll read the whole of the, whole of the chapter and then we'll get into it. Here we go. Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, the two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them, and they said, we'll go with you. So they went out, got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment round him, for he'd taken it off, and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you've just caught. Simon Peter climbed aboard and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153. But even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they'd finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. I tell you the truth, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and, where, where you want, uh, and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw that the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. This was the one who'd leaned back against Jesus at the supper and had said, Lord, who's going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? Jesus answered, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. 
Because of this, the rumor spread among the brothers that this disciple would not die. But Jesus did not say that he would not die. He only said, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? This is the disciple who testifies to these things and who wrote them down. We know that his testimony is true. Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. So... Uh, today we're going to look at John chapter 21, following on from uh, having looked at John chapter 20 last week. Um, a kind of a two-week mini-series, you can call it a series if you can just stretch it to two weeks, um, a two-week mini-series on, on living in the light of the resurrection. We, we had a fantastic time celebrating Easter, celebrating the fact, the historical um, fact that Jesus rose from the dead on the third day after being uh, crucified for our sins. If Christianity means anything, if it holds any truth, it's because Jesus was actually raised from the dead. Otherwise, our faith is built on a lie. It's uh, our faith is futile. Preaching is pointless. And we should be pitied more than anybody on the planet. Um, So a lot is riding on uh, on the resurrection, and uh, we, we have the opportunity, um, looking at John's gospel here and other gospels too, to consider the evidence again for ourselves. if we're not quite convinced, if we haven't quite seen it, um, to, to look at the eyewitness accounts of Jesus' resurrection. If we are convinced, if we do believe it, then it's the opportunity to ask ourselves the question, am I, am I living in the light of it? Am I benefiting from the good of it? Um, does it shape my expectations? We saw last week that living in the light of the resurrection doesn't mean we'll never experience any loss, any grief, any setbacks, any opposition, or any doubts. Um, those can come to disciples of the risen Jesus. But um, we saw uh, what we saw last week is the risen Lord Jesus breaking through, providing purpose in the midst of grief. Um, for Mary, bringing joy to his previously fearful disciples and challenging uh, doubting Thomas to stop doubting, believe. And um, I, I, I dared to say that kind of at the end of last week's message, at the end of chapter 20, we kind of re- reached the, the punchline to uh, John's gospel in verse uh, Well, 31 in particular, these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So at that point, the whole book, the whole of John's gospel has reached a climax, has reached um, its punchline, if you like. Uh, But we still get John chapter 21. Well, why is that? It's a bit like if you're into uh, either watching or reading uh, a a mystery novel, uh, Who Done It?, um, there's the point in the plot to which everything is building, and if it's Agatha Christie, all the toffs are in the room, um, sat down because Poirot or Agatha Christie has gathered them here, and he's about to, or she's about to, kind of reveal and uncover this one, this, this mystery of, of who done it. Um, but the book doesn't stop there. There might just be a little bit more, where a few other loose ends, a few other unanswered questions are, are resolved. And if it just stopped at chapter 20, verse 31, we might have a few questions. Well, what happened next? 
And in particular, what about Peter? Um, what happened with Peter? And, and so chapter 21 then becomes forward-looking. It's, this is what brings us into all that Jesus continued to, to do and teach once he'd ascended and uh, was seated at the right hand of the Father. So today we are going to look at uh, the disciples' story again. Uh, and, and how that takes shape in chapter 21. And we're also going to consider uh, Peter's story and see how that helps us to, uh, to live in the light of the resurrection. So first of all, uh, the disciples, not quite all of them. Uh, we're given a list of seven. Seven disciples uh, went up to Galilee and Peter said, I'm going to go fishing. And they all said, us too. How are we to understand that? Some people would understand this whole section here as demonstrating that the disciples were backsliding. Um, they were turning away from Jesus. They were going back to their old life. They were, they were moving on without Jesus. Uh, actually, I'm not convinced there's anything in the text that should lead us to that conclusion. In fact, even at the end of Matthew's gospel, Jesus um, tells his disciples, go back to Galilee. Uh, I'm going to meet with you there. So actually, the disciples have obeyed the last instruction they've received from Jesus. Go, go to Galilee. They've gone to Galilee. Um, there's no rebuke in the passage for them being there. And whilst they're waiting for whatever happens next, uh, they're not being idle. Um, they have thought they, they've, they've gone back to what they're familiar with, um, and maybe they're hungry. Um, and they're putting their time to, to good use. Um, and so the focus is particularly on the fact that having gone fishing, they catch nothing. And having gone fishing, when Jesus is on the shore speaking with them, at first, and for a while, the disciples don't recognize who he is. They don't see Jesus clearly. And practically we might think, well, he's about a hundred yards away on the shore and they're on the boat. He's, he's close, but he's not all that close. We might also observe from the text that it's early in the morning. So to what extent has the sun come up? How, what's the quality of light like? They don't see quite clearly. It's a bit misty. It's a bit distant. Jesus, we know, now has a new, uh, a new body, one that isn't subject to uh, injury or decay in any way. So he does look a bit different from when they were most familiar with him, but he has appeared twice already. Um, and also, he's not been with them every day like he was before. The disciples have been in Jerusalem. They went on pilgrimage with Jesus. They arrived there. Jesus was killed. Jesus rose again. Uh, on the first day of the week, he appeared in the morning, uh, to Mary. Then in the evening, he appeared, uh, and he, no, and he appeared to Thomas, um, as well later on. But obviously, time has passed. They've been able to travel all the way back to Galilee. So, it's not quite like it was before. It takes them a while. In verse 4, early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. And it's all the way through to verse 12, by which time they stood on the shore and Jesus is saying, come and have breakfast. 
None of them dare ask him, but they knew it was the Lord. It takes that long for, the, for them to, to realize who it is who's been speaking to them and instructing them. So again, a unique experience for them. Um, but for us too, we can sometimes take a while to recognize that Jesus is at work. Uh, we don't immediately always discern his presence and activity. And so living in the light of the resurrection does not mean there's, there's constant drama where it's always obvious what God is up to. Um, living in the light of the resurrection does not mean that any of us have or should expect to have a hotline to heaven where we never ponder what God might be saying. It's never the case that living in the light of the resurrection is, is it's always immediately obvious. Oh, I know. I'm totally sure. Sometimes we see things, but we don't always see things um, clearly. There can be a mistiness. Jesus is there. Jesus is working. Jesus is speaking. Jesus is doing a, a miracle. Jesus is inviting the disciples, and slowly but surely, the disciples cotton on. Sometimes it's easy to remember Jesus in the context of a meeting like this, or it's easy to perceive his presence and his activity when something super dramatic is really obviously happening. Now, something fairly dramatic does happen. They suddenly catch 153 fish, but there are other moments in life which feel mundane. They've, in a sense, they've gone back to work. They weren't being disobedient in going back to work. And sometimes we can think, oh, they must be backsliding because that's just the wrong thing to do. They should just be living by faith and, uh, and just kind of gliding through life on a, on a wave of miraculous provision. No, they've, they're hungry. They're going back to work. It's not wrong. And in that place, in this context, which can just seem a bit mundane and a bit ordinary and something they left behind ages ago, they've been on this massive wild adventure with Jesus... Oh, well, this is just work. This is just ordinary life. We're not expecting Jesus to rock up here. We're not expecting Jesus to speak now. But look, he is speaking. He is encouraging them. He is inviting them in the everyday, in what they're doing right now, to to see him, to hear him, to perceive him. What breaks through their uncertainty? Is it him? Well, I think they're being reminded of what Jesus has said and done before. They've gone out in the boat. Maybe the same boat they've used before. It's certainly the same lake. It's just called a different name here in John. The Sea of Galilee. The same guys on the same boat, on the same lake, doing the same occupation, and stood on the shore is the same Messiah who called them in the first place. And if you looked at at Luke chapter 5, you'd see there, when they were first called, Jesus has borrowed the boat. Jesus has been speaking to a large crowd. They've been fishing all night. Sound familiar? And they caught nothing. Sound familiar? And then Jesus from the shore speaks to them and says, try again. 
Sound familiar? And then they catch an abundance of fish that they can't kind of get in. It's a little bit different. We don't know that it's 153 fish. I I doubt it is. It takes two boats to bring it in. On this occasion, they just have the one boat, so they can't haul it up. They've just got to tow it. So, yeah, it's a different, it's different now, but it's the same. And so at this point, living in the light of the resurrection, Jesus is saying, I've still called you. Even though you might think this is now just mundane and ordinary, no, I've still called you. It's not wrong that you've gone back to fish for fish, but remember, I have called you to fish for men. And you will be fruitful. It will be different now. You'll, you'll be aware of me, but I'm a little bit... It's different. They're not going to see him with their eyes in the same way. But the call hasn't changed. They're, they're getting this reminder. They're being taken back, as it were, to, the, to when they were very first called. Do you remember what Jesus said? Do you remember what Jesus did? Do you remember what happened? Think, hang on a minute, even though we can't quite see this bloke on the shore and make him out really, really clearly, he's a hundred yards away, I think we know who this is. And the, the disciple whom Jesus loved, true to form, is quick to cotton on. Before they've got to the shore, before they've stood right next to him, it's the Lord. I recognize what Jesus is doing. I recognize that it is him. So for us, it's the, it's, it's the same, but it's different. If you look at Acts chapter 1, verse 1, just turning one page, probably, uh, in your Bible, um, as, as Luke writes his second book, he says, In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he'd chosen. Key word, began. Look, Jesus has been at work. Jesus has been doing and Jesus has been teaching. He's now ascended to the right hand of the Father. We don't see him with our eyes. But look, he is continuing to do and to teach. So, disciples of the risen Lord Jesus, do not lower your expectations. Oh, it's different now. It's not going to be the same. Um, That was the special time. That was the significant time. Maybe we even can do that in our lives and we can look back to the time when Jesus first called us. We think, well, that's when all the fireworks were happening. That's when it was really significant. That's when I've got all my stories of God breaking through in my life. And now time's moved on and it's just about the ordinary. Well, even if it is in the ordinariness of life and the workplace, we are to be a people of expectation that Jesus is still teaching. Jesus is still speaking. Jesus is still providing. And Jesus is still turning fruitlessness we've fished all night and caught nothing into an abundance throw the net out the other side ah okay yeah i remember what he's done before he's gonna do again so these disciples are being encouraged they're being reminded and that's for our benefit too to be encouraged and to be reminded this is a a a unique time in history Jesus risen from the dead, but he's not sent the Spirit. We're in the benefit of the, the ministry of the this, of this Holy Spirit. And what's a key aspect of what the Holy Spirit wants to do? What Jesus said to his disciples earlier in John, the Spirit of truth will remind you of what I've said. 
That's the, the, the ministry of the Holy Spirit to remind us and bring glory and to put a spotlight and to highlight what Jesus has done. So as we go through life, we think, yeah, that's a little bit like, flick through the pages, find the scripture, I think God's at work. I think God's doing something. I didn't realize, didn't kind of cotton on straight away. But yes, he's the God of breakthrough, doing a new thing. These disciples are at this point when they're realizing, yeah, it's the same but we're going to have to learn afresh. What does it mean to follow a saviour we can't, we can't see with our eyes? Learning to live by faith rather than by sight. I'm sure their faith was getting stirred, but they could see Jesus. Now, learning to live by faith. Sometimes, again, in the ministry of the Holy Spirit, we are so blessed and encouraged, not just by reminders of what we have seen or experienced before, and in particular, reminders of Jesus and what he's like and what he has said and done before in the pages of Scripture that we can read about as hard facts, but also the ministry of the Spirit pointing us forward, saying, this is what I'm doing. And we've had this as a church recently, being in the benefit of a, of a weighty, substantial, prophetic word, um, that probably time doesn't allow to, to kind of repeat in, in detail now, but just being reminded that, that the Lord is the Lord of breakthrough. And we were being reminded sometimes that, that there can be that sense of, of, of frustration, like if you're in a house, you just think we need more space. What can we do to get more space? Perhaps we can stretch to, to an extension here or an extension there. And we were being encouraged about the fact that, that actually... The, the Lord of Breakthrough will help us to make a discovery of space that's already within the house. A room that we didn't realize um, was there. Well, well, these things come because in the mundane, everyday nature of life, we might just feel a bit unsettled. We might just feel a bit frustrated, um, a bit dry, a bit thirsty. And we were being reminded, if you're feeling that, don't worry. If you're feeling that, don't become discouraged or despondent. If you're feeling that, turn that into prayer and expectation because God's about to break through. God's about to reveal what he's already provided. He just needs to open our eyes to it. And so we've been considering, what does it mean to be making some, some fresh discoveries in God that affect us in the here and now? That's what was going on here for the disciples. And we want to, to learn the same lesson. To, to learn to recognize Jesus. To learn to see, well really to learn what, and to learn to hear what he's saying. To learn to recognize what he is doing. And not just lower our expectations. Um, to everything being undramatic unspectacular, insignificant. Now, even in the midst of just an ordinary day fishing, suddenly we're seeing Jesus at work. We see that in the, the disciples' story. We also see something profound in Peter's story. This was the big question that has not, as yet has not been answered. This is the big loose end that, even by the climax of the whole book, has not been tied off. Where's Peter at? What's Jesus going to do with Peter now? 
What's Peter's part to play in all that the future will bring? This new age of living life in the light of the resurrection. Peter has been the the leader of this band of brothers, if you like. The unofficial leader. He's often the first to speak. He's often the first to act. In this passage, he's the first to jump in the water um, and go for it. He's, um, he's been this man of, of great good intentions. Um, and uh, in John's Gospel, we see that in particular. Specifically, we see that in John chapter 13. Verse 31, when he was gone, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself, and will glorify glorify him at once. Uh, A little bit further on, in verse 36, Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus replied, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me later. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Those were his intentions. This bold, courageous leader. In in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 26, we're told there, even if everyone falls away, I won't. These bold claims from a big, bold character claimed the greatest loyalty And we know that after his arrest, after Jesus' arrest in the garden, um, everyone deserted him. Well, Peter did actually follow, maybe at a slight distance. And he, he arrives in the courtyard where Jesus is being, uh, falsely accused and tried. So John chapter 18 verse 15, Simon Peter and another disciple were following Jesus because this disciple was known to the high priest. He went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard, but Peter had to wait outside at the door. Uh, The other disciple, who was known to the high priest, came back, spoke to the girl on duty there, and brought Peter in. So Peter and the other disciple are in the courtyard. Think, well, what, what was his intentions? What was the plan, Peter? What were you about to do? What was in your mind? Were you about to do something heroic to rescue the Savior? Were you about to do something supportive and just jump up and stand with him and receive the same sentence? What was, your, what was in your thinking, Peter? I don't think he was thinking along what would then prove to happen. From this great intention comes a great shame. He denied Jesus. He disowned him three times. First, as he's just arrived in, and then with a few others just warming himself by the charcoal fire. The ESV tells us it was a, a charcoal fire, just warming their hands, and someone else asks him, Aren't you one of his disciples? I thought we saw you with him. Aren't you with Jesus? And he's caught. Whatever his plans were, He's caught off guard in this moment of great pressure. He can now see where Jesus is. He can see how serious it is. And three times, no. No, I'm not with him. Nothing to do with the man. 
And then the cock crows. And he realized, oh yeah, Jesus predicted this. And we find out in Luke's gospel in chapter 22, verse 61, that Peter looks at Jesus and Jesus looks at Peter. And Peter turns away and weeps bitterly. This great sense of calling, all these bold claims, this sense of responsibility and boldness destroyed and he's absolutely devastated. Now, come back to chapter 21. Think, has this really been addressed yet? I'm not sure. Jesus has appeared on a couple of occasions. They're all overjoyed. But what's going on for Peter? Maybe for the disciples generally things were a little bit misty. They can't quite recognize Jesus at times. Maybe for Peter there is still this big cloud just hanging over him. This is wonderful. Jesus is alive. But, well, what next? What now? What happens now? I'm still weighed down by this shame. And then Jesus asks the killer question. Simon, the son of John, do you truly love me more than these? You'd claimed to love me more than anybody else. Even if they all fall away, I won't. Warming himself again by a charcoal fire. Maybe that's a bit subtle, but maybe it's John's intention to say, look, look what's happening. He's being taken back. Maybe there's this slight awkwardness. It's odd what shame can do uh, to a man. As soon as he hears, it's the Lord, he quickly jumps out of the boat and swims for shore. It's like this man wants to be with Jesus. When he gets to the shore, we don't know whether they have much of an exchange. We don't know uh, precisely because the disciple writing the book is the disciple who stayed on the boat. So he's not there. He's not able to report back. But when he gets there, Jesus says, It's like he's got to kind of encourage them. Come on, bring some of the fish you've just caught. They're a bit like tentative. We're not quite sure what to do. Uh, Get some fish. So Peter runs back to the boat. Well, he'd come ashore to go be with Jesus. And now he gets to the shore. Is he just thinking, well, I I want to be with Jesus, but actually I find it easier to go back to task. I'll I'll go and get the fish. That moment came when he... With, with eye contact with Jesus in the courtyard, and now he's kind of trying to avoid eye contact with Jesus. I'll just get stuck in and get the fish. Sometimes that's what can happen when, uh, when fear comes on. Now, this situation is unique to Peter, but we all know what it's like to encounter a time of pressure that we weren't quite expecting. Maybe we didn't feel very prepared for and to experience the shame therefore of knowing we've done something wrong maybe like peter everybody else knows about it thought you said you'd die for him as well oh no i'm still here all right it's just apparent yeah peter was the great leader but who is he now even the disciples are perhaps wondering we know what it's like to hurt someone we love well jesus predicted that it would happen You'll deny me three times before the cock crows. Doesn't mean he didn't hurt as Jesus looks up, hearing the cock crow, seeing Peter. Jesus knowing, I'm totally alone in this time. It hurts. Jesus knows what we're going to do tomorrow. 
Jesus knows what next week looks like. Jesus knows what five years looks like. It doesn't mean it doesn't hurt Jesus when we sin, when we deny him. And it could be like Peter denying him. Do you love Jesus? No, no, don't know the man. You know, literally denying him. It can be in other ways too. Just the pressure comes and we choose to do the other thing. We choose to make out that we're not a disciple. So we step in one direction. We kind of just choose no longer to make eye contact with Jesus in this moment because we, the pressure has come and we've chosen something else. We've chosen to deny him. We've chosen to disown him. We've chosen to disassociate ourselves from Jesus. And then we wonder, am I going to get restored? How does he, how does he view me now? I can't turn back the clock. I wish I could. Maybe it's somebody else that we've hurt. But we know that still hurts Jesus. We may have been full of the right intentions, the sense of calling, of faith and boldness and courage, but the moment came and we cracked under the pressure. That can happen. It can happen uh, to leaders. And uh, I think maybe in the past, I think maybe just since becoming the leader of a church, or maybe there are more stories, or maybe they just register more. Goodness, there goes another one. Be it gambling, uh, be it some other um, moral uh, failing. Yeah, there's never the intention, but the pressure came. Maybe Peter particularly feels the pressure of leading the group of disciples that he's a part of. And it's kind of got to him. Living in the light of the resurrection does not mean diluting the standards. Doesn't matter. Doesn't mean there are no consequences. Nothing needs to change. Living in the light of the resurrection doesn't mean there should be no conversation. We've all just got to get used to a a kind of collection of elephants in the room, uh, to use the phrase. Something really big, something really obvious, but we don't talk about it. We don't need to go there. Jesus goes there. Admittedly, in a way that's quite interesting. We're not told that Jesus said, Peter, we need to talk. Peter, come with me. It's not, in that sense, a really direct confrontation. Nevertheless, it's deliberate. Peter's sin is not getting airbrushed out of the story. He's being faced up with it. The group of disciples that he's a part of are being faced up with it. His denial was public. This conversation with Jesus is then going to be public. So living in the light of the resurrection doesn't mean diluting the standards, doesn't mean there's no consequences, doesn't mean stuff just gets airbrushed out of the story. But living in the light of the resurrection does mean that a weight of shame gets lifted from people's shoulders. What we're seeing here is in the light of the resurrection, Peter and Jesus meeting together and a relationship getting restored with Jesus. And the the purpose that Jesus always had in mind for Peter getting restored as well. And we were singing earlier on about, um, I'm forgiven, I'm restored because of Jesus, because of Jesus, because of Jesus. I am restored. That's what it's like to live in the light of the resurrection. So personally, we can be reminded of the encouragement from, uh, from 1 John. 
uh, reading from verse 8. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we've not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word has no place in our lives. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. The fact that Jesus has risen from the dead means that we know his sacrifice was enough to atone for our sin. It means that we know there is one living at the right hand of the Father able to intercede for us. He is the one who uh, is our defense. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Now we see Peter no longer claiming, of course I love you. He's not kind of this bold, arrogant so-and-so pointing to all of his credit and ability he just says all he appeals to is lord you know he's hurt by the third question maybe he didn't really appreciate what jesus was doing he was undoing those three denials asking the question three times that's what broke through his shame he asked the question three times son of john do you truly love me more than these yes lord you know that i love you answer the same question again do you truly love me yes lord you know that i love you asked again yes lord lord you know all things you know that i love you he's given three opportunities to express his love with a new humility It's in front of the disciples, it's public, they're involved in the restoration, in recognizing. What Jesus goes on to say as well is this threefold instruction. Feed my lambs, take care of my sheep, feed my sheep. He's being restored. He's being told that calling that I had in the first place continues. We might think it sounds really odd then. And a bit, it is quite sobering in verse 18 and verse 19 to hear that Jesus is predicting, you will die. Think, oh, I guess maybe that's what I deserve. I did fluff up after all. Is it some kind of punishment? No, he's just saying, this restoration, it's a full restoration. We go back to that conversation that Jesus had with Peter when Jesus was predicting his death in the first place. In chapter 13, it went like this. Jesus says, where I'm going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. How did Peter understand that? Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus had said, you will lay down your life for me. And now he's being told, what I said back then applies now. You will lay down your life for me. You will walk the path I've always had for you. You have sinned. You have hurt me. But in this moment, round the fire, on the beach, 
you're getting restored. So that no longer you have that moment where you just think, I don't want to have eye contact with Jesus. No longer are you going to have that moment where you think, perhaps like the prodigal son returning. I can kind of do the stuff. I can serve within the household. I can play my part, but I'm no longer a son. I don't think he's going to take me back in that way. I'll just do the stuff, but I'm not looking him in the eye. Peter's brought back to that point. Like, no, don't just get kind of so task-focused you forget that relationship with me is right at the heart of what I've always had in mind for you. That's why this conversation takes place. If time allowed, we would chat a little bit more or heard speak a little bit more about Peter and his relationship with the other disciple and avoiding competition in the light of the resurrection, not getting caught out in jealousy or pecking order or comparisons, but we won't develop it much right now. Uh, my, my hope is that in these two weeks we've looked at living in the light of the resurrection will help us know the Saviour and his activity in our lives when we don't see him. And maybe the thing just to underline is looking at Peter's story. We might say it's understandable that Peter cracked under pressure. We might share between ourselves and say, well, it's, it's understandable. It's not great. It's understandable. But don't settle for just a task-focused, busy Christian life where you don't relate with Jesus very closely and you're kind of caught in two minds. On the one hand, I want to run and be with him. On the other hand, when I get closer, I just feel awkward and I want to turn away. Living in the light of the resurrection means a fully restored relationship with Jesus where our, our, it doesn't, our backstory doesn't get completely airbrushed out of history but we're not just left in this weird halfway house we're not just left in a kind of cloud over us we're restored we can even be involved in helping restore one another not just (gasps) kick Peter into touch or oh Peter it never mattered anyway we understand it's neither of those ways it's okay let's draw close to Jesus Let's look him in the eye and let's come back to him fully and let's experience the restoration that he wants to bring to us. Amen. Um, We'll stand and we'll worship. I'll just pray um, whilst we get ready to worship. Father God, I want to thank you so much. I want to thank you so much, Lord God, for your word. I want to thank you so much for John chapter 20 and for John chapter 21. This unique time in history that in a sense we don't revisit, but that is to affect how we live now. Knowing that Jesus is risen, he's alive and he's seated at the right hand of the Father. Sometimes God looking into your word or looking into your face is uncomfortable because as we do, we can see what we're like. But I pray, Lord God, that as we look at your word and as we look at Jesus, 
we would see more of what he is like. We'd see more of God's heart. Father God, I pray that by your spirit you'd be powerfully present and active amongst us even these next few moments as we worship. That may be a mist would lift. And we can just freshly see, not in some weird super spiritual way, but we can freshly see that Jesus is speaking, that Jesus is working, that Jesus is providing, even in moments that might seem quite mundane. We've just been given fresh eyes to perceive you, Lord Jesus, in the day-to-day of our lives. I pray as well, Lord God, that the cloud would lift as well. That our restoration would begin or take place today. Where we're just hearing the, the affirmation or we're brought into a situation. We'd rather not consider it, but actually we get free from something. Enabling us to serve. Enabling us to, to run into the future with you. Amen. Let's uh, let's stand and worship.